What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode number 27 of Through the Veil. I'm your host, Alex Nelson, and on today's episode, we have Rocky Caravelli, who is the owner of the Ibogaine facility Awakening Within the Dream House, based out of Mexico. And this was a super, super interesting episode. It's a super long one, so buckle in. It's about two hours, and I found myself at many times during this episode just being a passenger and kind of just listening to Rocky's story which is super interesting, going through addiction, coming out of that, finding Ibogaine, reconnecting with his family, and just, it's a really beautiful story, and he has a lot, a lot of wisdom to share, so I hope you enjoy this one. If you do, as always, a five-star review on iTunes is amazing, and if you leave a written review, even better, that helps spread the show out. You can find me on my website, www.throughtheveil.co, and you can get all the goodies I have on there to help you further your personal journey. But without any further ado, let's jump right in. All right, so welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being on, Rocky. If you can give everyone just a little bit of an intro of who you are and kind of what you do, and then I want to dig in a little bit to just your sort of personal journey, which I find super interesting through addiction and through finding Ibogaine and through now actually starting retreat center for Ibogaine in Mexico. I want to hear the whole story. So kind of just go for it and introduce yourself. All right. Hey, thank you. It's a, it's really nice to be here. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me. Um, this is actually the first podcast I've done in uh, a few years. You know, uh, there was a whole period of time where I was kind of I was kind of out in the front lines. Mm-hmm. Um, my name is Rocky Caravelli, and I uh, I basically came from uh, Marin County as a young boy when it was still a cool place, um, and uh, a normal you know background kind of thing, and started uh, having problems as, with social anxieties and stuff pretty early on. And it wasn't long before I started finding uh, drugs uh, could help with this stuff. I think a lot. I think a lot of my drug use was uh, self-medicating. Mm. Um, and you know, once you start to get high, you start to like it. And so it's like, well, which is which? So, um, but yeah, I was pretty much a normal guy. You know, I was a carpet layer. Um, I met Asha when she was 18 and I was 21 and I was still cooking in restaurants. I thought I wanted to be a chef until I was like pointed out to me that, um, my starting rate as a carpet layer is like, kind of like what a good, co- good cook on an open line gets right. yeah, yeah. Now after years of, of going to school and, mm-hmm. and working on a hot line. So my, uh, my stepfather kind of convinced me and, and I, and I, I switched trades at I think 21 right around when I met Asha about a year after and um but you know she was a waitress and I was a cook and it was a nice full moon and I rode her home on the handlebars of the bicycle <laughs> and um we uh, made love on the living room floor that day and uh, and then I never left and we're still hanging out even though we're divorced and uh have two kids that are grown um we're really really good friends we like each other um but the addiction stepped in uh at a certain point We'd already ran away from the addiction one time from Marin County to Grass Valley, running away from a cocaine addiction. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't but a couple more years. And then I met methamphetamine, which ended up being my my true love. 
mm. you know, which was really sad because it it tore down it tore down my family and I remember right I, I was living in a station wagon when I moved out you know because I basically realized I was completely screwing these these people's lives up meaning my children and Asha and uh, knew I had a problem but I didn't have any clue I was basically preparing myself to get ready to go to prison because that's where everybody else was going right you kind of bang around it, you know two o'clock in the morning with firearms and and methamphetamine eventually you're going to end up in prison so i didn't know anything about recovery i didn't even know that there was a concept of recovery i didn't even know there was any i just figured this is going to be how it goes so uh in 92 i uh went to a, a meeting and uh made no sense like how is this supposed to affect this this daily beast that wakes me up every morning and says mm -hmm. feed me feed me mm -hmm. and uh but I did go to rehab and I was a smart ass and all this kind of stuff. So it didn't, it didn't come easy, but it, but it got me on, the, it got me on the beginning of, of a, of a path of recovery. Um, but really, um, nature had always been my retreat. Like even when I was a kid, my parents were yelling and screaming. I had a meadow because I was fortunate enough to live on Mount Tamalpais, which is like this little mountain in Marin County, which is gorgeous redwoods. And I had a meadow that I would retreat to. And it was the same meadow I had my first cigarette. It was my same meadow that I took a hit of acid and just sat and watched the day come and go. It was the same meadow that I, you know, uh, started having my first sexual experiences. You know, it was like there was something about the woods and nature that became my deepest connection to this planet that was probably my saving grace. That might my love for my daughter and my son would pull me out of addiction and get me back into recovery and give it another try, you know? So there was a lot of tries. So, you know, this went on for a long time. And then after uh, four or five years of uh, continuous sobriety with a woman in the program and really trying to be like a program guy and, and, you know, I'd done my steps and I'd had, and I had some really powerful experiences as a result of that, you know, some awakenings, um, a, a new connection to a to spirit guides. I had never, mm -hmm. I, I didn't like God. Um, I felt God was like way busy creating universes and galaxies. Mm -hmm. what the hell, like, how is he gonna, how is he gonna have any like connection with me? Right. And this ended up showing up later with the abogo. Like, this is actually part of their belief structure is that you have to have a medium between you and God, and then you have to connect with your ancestors. So, mm -hmm. this first higher power kind of concept came as a an older woman actually like i was 20 and she was probably in her 40s and and this spirit guide was with me for a good four or five years as i was introducing myself into this these really narrowly minded rigid recovery type programs but that's all there was that's right. all there was was that was sort of made. like a 12 step classic program yeah several of them mm, right. <laughs> i was running them by the end mm. you know i was running sober houses and mm. you know being an alumni and <clears throat> but you know everything that i learned to open the clinic I, I basically learned from those same principles especially about working with others and how to work with others and how how to do detoxes at home and that was the one thing that that me and my girlfriend really enjoyed in that that four or five year period of sobriety before i hit um what they call a, uh, a discontentment. In other words, all the work that it took for five years of that sobriety 
there was this big emptiness about it all. Like it had no meaning. It had no purpose. There was no actually any meaning or purpose for my life. Mm. And, um, and you know, this happened more than once. And it was kind of like the next step, of course, is to pick up. And so that's kind of was the pattern for many years. Uh, but this time when I picked up, she had an affinity towards heroin. I had an affinity towards meth. And we both soon discovered that the combination was quite, quite, quite good. Uh, I guess, you know, speaking to whatever. Right. So I became a heroin addict. Um, and I remember the day um, going, you know, this probably ain't too smart to be doing this. Mm -hmm. And the next day going, we need to get more of this. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was like it had set up a couple months had gone by of, you know, just kind of uh, chipping away with it. And, um, and she kind of knew all about it. So I was kind of her money source, you know, even though we had broken up for a short period during her beginning of the relapse, I was like, I'm not going down this road. But six weeks later, I returned, hmm. pounding on the door, asking for a fix. And that hmm. started that whole thing. So a couple months into it, I started realizing what the hell have I done to myself? It's not like I can just like go through the difficulty of the detox, which methamphetamine definitely has, hmm. um, and, you know, get back on my recovery game or whatever. It just didn't work that way. So the, you know, we started trying to use methadone, but what had happened was, is I came up with this clever idea to get off the heroin where I was going to have uh, carpal tunnel surgery on both hands, which meant I couldn't even wipe my ass. Hmm. Um, and a, a couple bottles of, Demerol and um, and like codeine or something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, which will never, you know, knock down an opiate habit. But for about four days, I made it about four days after this surgery because I was getting paid by my by my company with insurance. Um, so that I'd have this six week window of recovery from the surgery to try to get off these drugs. And um, like I said, on day four, I caved in, or she caved, and we caved in, and. Uh, but that day I had been reading Discover Magazine and at the very bottom was a paragraph that said end of cravings and it was talking about MC18. And, uh, and then at the very last sentence it said MC18 is, is a derivative of ibogaine, which comes mm. from the plant of boga, which is currently being used for addiction interruption for opiates. And you know, around this time in 2003, only about 2,500 people had ever taken an IV game for mm. uh, detox. So it, it wasn't really like out there yet, you right. know? And I got online and I got a hold of, uh, at the time he was calling himself Eric Taub, uh, who became a good friend, his name's Richie now. Um, and uh, we talked for a while and he told me, you know, you need to bring somebody to take care of you. And then the two of you fly in and I'm adding this up. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, I'll come and I'll administer and then I'll check on you with boosters and, you know, just like, well, okay. Now we're looking at about eight grand, which is what is sub at the very beginning, they were just starting Suboxone. So there was this mm -hmm. like, idea, well, should we go Suboxone or should we do this Ibogaine, you know? And then he said, Hey, why, why don't you call down, here, I'll give you now. Why don't you call down? There's some guys down in San Diego, um, just over the border, in uh, between Rosarito and TJ, that are that are are providing ibogaine. And it was Martin Polanco and Randy Hankin from the Ibogaine Association. So I contacted them, and um, 
Randy said, okay, just, just start, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep your money. I go, I'm not going to be able to come up with this. Right. So, you know, we got to have it every day. Right. So right. we're both going through 150 bucks each day, trying to hold a house together with children and cars mm -hmm. and insurance and all that bullshit. And, um, you know, so it took about 10 months to save up for the two of us to go many rounds of the methadone clinic, you know, coming in and out and this and that and going back to heroin. And so finally the day came and, 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 and Randy goes, you made it, you got it. You got, you got the six grand. And, uh, and, and I was like, really? He goes, yeah, come on down. So we came on down and, uh, God, you know, I was thinking about this morning, that Friday, I, we flew down on a Saturday, that Friday, I looked everywhere for, for methamphetamine. I mean, I was like, we got, we got to get something to, to, to go on the trip, man. We're going to get right. down there and we're going to crash and then we won't be able to move. Mm. Um, the addiction, when you have a dual addiction like methamphetamine and heroin, if you have any one of them, it won't work. So it was a complicated dependency to, to always have to have these two compounds right. and the proper levels in order to function. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, mornings started out with, you know, you wake up in withdrawals, but you got to do a shot of methamphetamine to get out of bed and your blood runs cold and you immediately go into opiate withdrawal. Mm. And then you get up, you know, and you're trying to cook the heroin shaking and you're barfing in a bucket, you know, because of the smell of the tar heroin vinegar. Mm. And then you finally get that first shot in and things start calming down and you get all your shit together and I get in the truck to go to the methadone clinic to pick up my shot so I can go pick up my rolls of carpet so I can go make a living to pay for my drugs. You know? right. <laughs> Which I think like just to key in on that, I think that's one of the misconceptions people often have about drug addiction is that it's this like junkie without a job, not holding down a job and they're homeless and like, for most people actually who have addictions, it's not the case. Most people that have addictions are like holding down a job and just barely keeping it together. But it sounds like that was the case for you. Like you were still working and you were able to save the money. So that's just interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it's like, you know, we were going around in people's neighborhoods taking old furniture and I'd take it home and I'd tweak out and sand mm -hmm. it, paint it. And then we'd have a garage sale. Right. And then all the proceeds from the garage sale, would, I'd put it on a check and send it to Randy down mm -hmm. So I didn't like, I never even knew what the balance was until, you know, until he said, Hey, you, you got it. You got it. You got your six grand. Come on down. And, um, you know, so you know, we ended up down there in San Diego and, and, and like I said, in hindsight that if I would have found that methamphetamine, the treatment could have killed me. Like, mm -hmm. um, you can't have that shit in your system when you take Ibogaine and it would have been Saturday was my last methadone dose. Sunday, we were in a hotel. Monday, we got picked up. You know, we were wrecked. We slept all day Monday and into Tuesday. And then Tuesday at 2 p.m., you know, we had my last shot of heroin on Sunday. So, you know, we, we were hanging out. We were in withdrawal. Like, we were sick. Mm -hmm. um, but not too sick. Like, it wasn't like, like, everything was just so scrambled. I couldn't even tell the difference between up and down. Right. But, you know, the... They basically, they, the test dose was five milligrams per kilogram, which is actually fine. The idea that uh, people are going to be allergic to I Ibogaine is, uh, I think, um, 
a wives' tale hmm. or a misconception of uh, biology. Um, I've seen people have interesting reactions to ibogaine that I would consider something similar to a uh, a, a, a reaction, mostly perpetual vomiting. Uh, but you know, anyway, so five milligrams was enough to actually, I was starting to dream and I met this tree spirit and it was like an old Oak tree. I remember looking at the bark really closely and I could see that it was a living tree, but it had no leaves and it was like this fire. It looked like it was world war one fire and brimstone with smoke and one of the branches had this like it was a branch that grew with a light on it and it got up in my face and would roar and this roaring would was like blowing through my body and as it was blowing it through my body I could feel things coming out of my back and they were like kind of like bubbles like almost like it was a physical sensation of being blown like something blowing through me and right blowing these characters out of my my back and um and i remember getting another real you know intense three waves going because i hadn't taken psychedelics like i was not looking forward to this experience as a psychedelic like journey it was like right. i didn't care if i lived or died through it i was i was mm -hmm. like at my wit's end um which you know is actually uh we'll, we'll talk about that maybe more later about you know, what it is to come to Ibogaine and ask for mm -hmm. it to help you. Uh, but I was like, whatever I got to go through to get this done, I'm willing. Um, after those three big waves, it didn't get any harder or worse or anything. It just kind of calmed down. But I felt my whole body cool down. I felt it go into my fingernails. I felt it go up into my hair. And I remember saying, oh, my, my addiction's gone. It's, my addiction's gone. And of course, 45 minutes later was when the 10 milligram per kilo was going to hit. So it was five milligrams, wait 45 minutes, give them the 10 milligrams, and then that's, that's, that's the protocol. That's it. Everybody gets the same. So during this 45 minutes of working with that first dose, you know, this tree spirit thing kept doing this blowing thing through me, you know, and finally, you know, it got up into my face. I said, you know, I know you. I'm not afraid of you. I've met you before. And I said it out loud. It took me two years to figure out what the hell was that? Mm -hmm. Where did that come from? What did that mean? I mean, just a few, you know, half an hour of this interaction with this medicine on this kind of stream of consciousness and then the 10 milligrams kicked in and I felt what felt like roots growing from my feet. It's kind of a traditional thing mm -hmm. that the medicine starts in your feet and works its way up. And, they, and I could see it in my mind's eye. It was roots that looked like fingers, dark, dark green, but they were like kind of like my veins. And it went all the way up and it curled around my brain and it like kind of was holding my brain. Mm -hmm. And I just remember going, I'm going to let the medicine heal me. And before my face hit the pillow, I was out cold. Mm. Now, I've never seen this happen in 800 plus treatments that somebody goes fully unconscious in, in a session. Right. You know, they had some guy sitting in the chair that was probably didn't you know speak any English, was hired nurse to mm. make sure that we kept breathing. 
but really, if I would have had methane, I believe, if, and if the reason why my body did that was my central nervous system, because of the methamphetamine, and you see this with methamphetamine and cocaine, it just shuts down. Like to see somebody sleep on Ibogaine is like. Which is a bit of a stimulant, if I'm correct. Like how it, can you possibly be asleep in a right. session, right? You know, but the stimulants, basically you, you, you blow a fuse or something mm. shorts out, you know? So four hours later, they woke me up and cause we were in a hospital and they put me in a wheelchair cause I couldn't walk and they loaded us in a van with about four other people puking in buckets. <laughs> and this is like, you know, six hours into this four six hours into this. And I remember sitting in a parking lot while Martin was getting Valium and Clonidine and you know, everything's still kind of tripping, but I'm mm. not in the, the main thrust of it. And, um, and then we drive down a Pacific coast highway for eight miles on this windy road. And like I said, people are bonding. Iboga doesn't like to be moved once you right. begin. Yeah. It wants to be grounded. So it's not, not a traditional usage of most medicines that I've heard of. It's like, stay where you are. Just lay down. Yeah, the idea is like, you know, take your shoes off, take your yeah. pants off, climb exactly. into bed. You're going to be right. there for a while. You know, totally. we, we still had our shoes and clothes on. You know, it's like, uh, and I did this, I did this very same thing to like at least 60 people where we take you to the hospital, we hook you up to monitors, we dose you, you know, we picked you up at eight in the morning, you're dosed at two in the afternoon. Who knows when you did your last hit? Normally at eight o'clock when they won't answer the door, right. uh, you know, and then, you know, you have them home by like, say six, eight o'clock and then they're in the recovery house, you know, through the night and, and all that. And then the next day you kind of have to start filling in the pockets where the began to complete its job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but that was just the way they did it. That was just normal protocol. There was no questioning. It wasn't like, you know, I was there for detox. I didn't know anything about Wheaty. I didn't know anything about it being right. a, 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 an initiatory experience. I didn't know anything about the fact that I was going to get my manhood back. Like, mm. like that was a full experience in itself. This was a few days after the main session, but I do remember getting back to the, to the, to the recovery house, me and my girlfriend. And she said, you know, there was like a deep meditation. It, it wasn't very uh, intense for me. And I said, you know, I go, I, I, I don't remember any of it. I felt, I, I, I fell asleep or something. And she goes, really? And so we slept that night. I tried to have a cigarette and then I vomited. Hmm. And I remember saying or hearing, no one's allowed. Nothing's allowed. Like it was the voice of the, it was the very first voice of a boga speaking to me going, this is sacred ground. No one else is allowed. Hmm. And he was talking about nicotine, you know? And so I couldn't smoke. And anyway, I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning at 7 a.m., and I was crying before my eyes opened because I didn't have to dose and I knew it was over. Mm. And I woke up like that for the next four or five mornings where my eyes hadn't even opened and I was, I was crying. I was like, it's over. It's, it was like a fucking war, man. Yeah. And um, what was the feeling in that moment? Was it just relief or gratitude or just. Uh, it, it was a combination of, of yeah. Relief, gratitude, I lived, I mm. lived through it. Um, I was, I was spared. Uh, and then the next part was a whole sense of 
of self-forgiveness that was on a level, you know, people would always say this, oh, you got to forgive yourself. It's like, what the fuck? I, I, maybe I shouldn't swear somewhere. No, go um, ahead. Um, you know, what is that supposed to mean? Forgive yourself. Like, like, how does that feel? Like, what does that look like? What, Falls in the same category as surrender. People are like, what does that mean? What do you mean I have to surrender to the medicine? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, that's, that's a, a really good one too, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I did understand that I needed... Er- all of a sudden I actually knew what my purpose was. And then my, my girlfriend and I who had, you know, dragged people home to our houses and let them kick on our couch and stuff like that. And normally not successful. Cause they can't get that day four trying to, you know, come off heroin. Mm-hmm. You, you just cave in most of the time, you know, it's like, um, and then even if you get through those parts, it's like trying to get through the next two months of post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Right. It's like, you know, it's just, you can't do it alone. Yeah. or with you know one or two people it, it it really requires i don't know i don't know how people do it i, I just knew mm-hmm. what i could do and I, what i could do and what i couldn't do but that morning i woke up at seven and and i went out and you know went through this experience of of just you know oh my god it's over like it really is over you know it hasn't even been 24 hours yet my teeth had stopped hurting right because i the sugar, I don't know, my teeth were always hurting, maybe from the methamphetamine. Um, I mean, these are things I noticed within the first 20, 30 minutes after I woke up. My, my teeth had stopped hurting. I hadn't had a cup of coffee in over a year. I wanted a cup of black coffee, not coffee mm-hmm. with cream and sugar. I wanted a cup of black coffee and a bowl of cornflakes with no sugar on it. So my mm-hmm. sugar cravings had gone away. I wanted coffee, which was like, you know, I had coffee every morning before I picked up, you know, and I started realizing what's going on here. Like what had just happened? And, you know, the teeth, the teeth not hurting. And then I looked out the window and all I wanted was sun. So I took all my clothes mm-hmm. off and I, I put a little blankie out, you know, nobody was at the house. There was no um, counselors or caregivers or whatever. They, I don't know what they, I don't know what they were doing. Um, so I'm laying out there naked in the sun on the grass, you know, and that's what I did every day for the next 13 days I was there. I was in the daytime, I laid out in the grass. I mean, they make me wear clothes or cover up, but I wanted the sun on my naked body. Mm-hmm. Out in, I mean, that's what I wanted. And it was probably, you know, I've been living in a cave through the, you know, for a whole year. Right. Um, so, you know, I got on, I got out on the thing. Colleen got up and she was a little bit more shaky than I was. And we were coming off of 80 milligrams of methadone. That was the, that was our tolerance at the time. Plus the gram of methamphetamine a day, plus, you know, intermittent heroin. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, my legs are achy, you know, but you know, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like, you know, this is okay. So we got through that first day, the cold, the cold, everything hurt, right? The, lack of endorphins like the wind mm-hmm. on my hairs and my arms hurt you know like from my neck down there was like this this achiness and as the days wore on it kept getting further down my body you know and then it was just in my my legs and i think that's traditional methadone i mean that's what we've seen is mm-hmm. but doing ibogaine in, a, in an environment where you actually have cold is is really really difficult in opiate uh opiate detox so it was one of the reasons why we moved further south in Mexico is you need the warmth because you, mm. your body cannot regulate your, your thermostats blown. 
notice this on mushrooms too it seems a lot of psychedelics it seems when you're on it people are almost always cold it's interesting and um you know and we were you know living out in front of the fireplace i i have a history of catching on fire when i detox so i lit the house on fire one night and i lit my feet my tennis shoes on fire another night um just kicked them into the fire because they were on fire um the other fire was a little bigger uh but that's like a whole story but uh you know that that was kind of like the beginning and colleen my girlfriend was like we got to learn how to do this. And I go, don't joke with me, man. I've been trying to get out of Marin County. I've been trying to get you out of Marin County. I can't lay carpet anymore. My back is shot. You know, why don't we come down here? Why don't we bring the kids down here? Let them go to school here. I'll ask my ex-wife, you ask, ask your ex-husband and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get, we'll come down here and we'll learn how to work with this medicine. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is like, this is like the most profound thing we've ever seen. Like, especially after all the years of working with people, trying to detox them and in our own experience and it was like oh my god this is the golden key and it was her inspiration unfortunately she couldn't go her husband was like yeah right you junkie bitch you know mm, let me take mm-hmm. my daughter out of the country right. you know but my ex-wife asha was like something happened to you rock i i haven't heard i haven't heard this this part of you in a long long time she's She's like, something had happened. And we went to a therapist a couple of times, you know, to see if we were sane or not, you know, to take our kids and bring them to Mexico and put them in a public school. I mean, it was such, it was such an inspired period that there was inspiration pouring in from like all these different directions. So Aboga mm-hmm. had basically like what was in my mind's eye was a spotlight through all this dust and a box that you know how boxes kind of like fold you can mm-hmm. kind of fold them together it was just a box that was all unfolded which i guess represented my mind mm-hmm. had blown open and it looked like confetti mm-hmm. but they were dust shining through some light maybe from the crown or whatever and this image sat with me for months you know every time i close my eyes was this this image of the light shining through the glittery dust particles of a mind blown open which Mm -hmm. is kind of like when they talk about breaking open the head uh which was a daniel pinchbeck kind of statement but Mm -hmm. but it's also a statement that they use in buidi about you know breaking open the head and if you ever Mm -hmm. watch an aboga grow from seed the seed comes up out of the stem and is on the head of of the root Mm -hmm. and then it breaks open and so even even the plant right. will tell you and the seed looks here's just what's like, going to happen <laughs> yeah it's going to break open your head and the seed if you look at it actually has a left and right hemisphere and and resembles your your cerebral cortex mm. um and plants will tell you what they will help you with i mean right. it's like, i'm going to help you fix your head we're going to break it open and we're going to put things back together again so you know this this inspiration to 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 follow this thing was like it just went into my heart it just went into my heart um i took two more boosters while i was in uh tijuana this is in the primary treatment period um and one of them i had an experience of interconnectedness where 
like these ribbons of light, which I had witnessed in uh, the very beginning of the session where I was seeing sound. And they went through me like a little shockwave and came out the other side and hit a palm tree and then split up into like six. And then they went into like a hundred mm. and they hit all the plants and then they went out across the ocean. And the voice said, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of everything. I am everything. And mm. I just fell to my knees and sobbed for 45 minutes, you know? So that was my first booster. And this is all in like physical real time. Like this isn't a hallucination. This is the middle of the day. And it's like, this whole thing is happening. And then the second one was a rod came down and it felt like, like the hand of God crammed a rod down my spine. And I was sitting in a kind of a meditation position and it literally lifted me off, off the ground and I landed on my feet and I cried out, I am the leader of my family. And what it was, was I was claiming my manhood. That I, I'm the leader of my family. There's this like force of strength that streamed in in such a powerful way. And that's about the time I talked to Asha was, was after that experience. And she had obviously heard the tone of my voice had changed. And, and that's what happens is addiction is basically stealing parts of our soul Mm -hmm. we, we're trading it, we're in agreement with it on some level we're willing to give up these things and the opiates and the methamphetamine had taken away my my manhood my 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 rights my rights of possession of myself mm -hmm. and i and i realized you know we're real estate we're fucking real estate and and we're making these contracts with these spirit plants who mm -hmm. have personalities and, and we're inviting them in. And then as a result, they end up, you know, occupying us, but they're not paying rent. Right. They're not maintaining the building. The buildings, the windows are breaking, the carpet's getting ripped up. You know, the dishes are overflowing under the floor. Nobody's clean, you know, and this is what, the, this is what the addiction's doing to you. And I was, you know, seeing these like manifests. Um, and then I saw how Iboga basically kicked all these guys out and then would stay with me for a while, which was the nor I began, was staying present with me and was teaching me, you know, the primary first stages of spiritual emergence, mm. um, which was expressed like looking at the ocean and realizing that the white light from the sun reflecting off the ocean is pure white light. And if you meditate on it, it literally goes into the back of your brain and washes the cell membrane walls of your optical nerve center. And then, you know, when you come out of this meditation, you know, after you do this for a few days, so it's teaching me all these things on a daily basis. It's like teaching me. And I had the book, the power of now, which was given to me by Polanco, which I read probably five times just slowly you know, every night a couple pages, and I was implementing those teachings of being present, like literally walking in presence, driving in presence. I had been, I had never been in my body before. Right. I, I'd, I'd never been in my body, like I'd never had the experience of being fully in my body. And, you know, the very moment that I had that first experience was in a taxi cab in the back, and I realized my mind was quiet. I mean, all my life, I'd never had, you know, like I'd never had these experiences before. It was like, they were so powerful. The quietness was so powerful mm -hmm. because I'd never heard 
silence before. Which is ironic because kind of what you were doing before that with the addictions was you were trying to manufacture that emotional state of like nothingness and the fact that only through the other side of this difficult experience is that it's just interesting because I think that's the addict in me and the addict in most people that shows up is that's what we're looking for exactly and like you said it's a trade you're trying to trade you're trying to trade away the things maybe you're the most scared of which you know perhaps the family perhaps it's your success whatever it is and you're trying to trade those for this emotional stability or this place of peace but that place of peace is only reached through different means well and then the first one that really came up was intimacy Mm. you know so I got to come back three weeks later. The breakup with Colleen was horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, she went manic. She ended up picking up a bottle about four or five days back. Mm-hmm. She was using within a couple of weeks back. I, so I, I, I left and, and just realized like, we need to take care of our kids. Like we, we need to be grownups now. Um, and Asha had, you know, agreed to take, you know, with the kids coming to Mexico and she brought them down. She gave me a couple of weeks head start and um, got him into school and everything. And that turned out to be one of the wisest decisions we ever made, even though, like I said, it was, this was all inspired. It, none of this was happening when we arrived, when I arrived in Mexico. By the time mm-hmm. I left Mexico, I had like a whole new purpose and reason. Like for, I got some good ideas, ready? <laughs> we had like I had a whole new purpose and reason for living. I, mm-hmm. I like found my Dharma. Like I was like, okay, this, I can do this. Cause Martin was letting me go down after like day six or seven and I'm, you know, we're picking up people at the hospital and I'm helping them vomit. And this mm-hmm. guy goes, did you see that thing come out? And there's like big blue thing came out of his vomit. And I go, that was the monkey, man. Did you see that? The monkey came out, you know, the monkey came mm-hmm. off your back. And so there was this in- instantaneous like attraction to wanting to like participate, you know, mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. is huge, you know, like I figured I begin by now is going to be like, you know, on poster boards across America, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it, it just, it didn't work out that way. You know, I, I swore this was going to be the biggest thing of the 21st century, um, which maybe it still is, but <laughs> we, got, we got time. <laughs> you know? uh, so, you know, after returning and everything and, and I'm realizing that, you know, I needed to do all of these things. I needed to go through method. I was like, how did I ever become an opiate? I needed to go through all these things in order to become what I was to become. Mm-hmm. And, and there was something so settling about everything that had happened. Like there was all this, this kind of self, like, like I said, a, a real true feeling of self-forgiveness for what I was, but also knowing that I had a direction to go in to offer it. So all through recovery, I was always what they called on the fence. You know, like I really didn't know if I wanted to be sober. I, didn't, I really mm-hmm. didn't want to be loaded. It was, it was like this back and forth. Suddenly I wasn't on the fence anymore. Somehow I ended up all the way out in the middle of a pasture free of addiction. Mm. And, and it was, it was like, uh, okay, I'm going to run with it. I'm going to run with this. Um, I spent about nine months down there in Mexico and worked with about 75 people under the standardized protocol of five milligrams per kilo, 10 milligrams per kilo. It It was super valuable because I got to really observe. I was just a sitter. Near the end, I started administering because the doc- the doctor that they had hired didn't know anything about Ibogaine. I knew more about mm-hmm. 
than he did. So I was like literally teaching him. I go, no, you have to separate the capsule weight. You can't mm-hmm. include it. Right. You know, it's like, you have to do this like accurately. Um, we started realizing how like, you know, some people were going into withdrawal the next day because mm-hmm. they used that morning that they're, so we just started learning. But around, around eight months, I had gone to San Francisco to re get my, um, uh, cause all this time I was getting disability insurance for my back, which was cool. Right. So, you know, they're paying me 10 bucks an hour and they're like trying to give me raises. I was like, let's do six months. When my disability runs out, we'll sit down and we'll talk about it. If you want me to be a business partner and mm-hmm. if you want me to run the clinic down in Mexico and, you know, and they were thrilled because they were like, we were busy, man. We had people coming through. Yeah. Um, and for the first couple of years, they really struggled. So like it was getting known and, you know, and then I was doing my job, you know, I was doing my job. Well, I was basically house manager and I'd pick them up and I was a sitter. I mean, it was, it was, it was quite uh, physically taxing. Mm-hmm. Ibogaine work is very taxing. Um, and the kids were going to school and my daughter's learning Spanish and my son's surfing. And I mean, I hadn't been alone with the kids ever, like for, you know, a period like this. And, uh, yeah they were like 13 and 15 and um and my daughter was fascinated with it more more so than my son my son was you know 13 year old boy mm-hmm. but she actually was kind of like you know she would come up to the clinic and meet everybody and you know there was this there was just such an energy around the birthing of the west coast um emergence into having uh, ibogaine here on the west because that was the first established clinic um so there was a you know a definite magic happening in the west coast where iboga had just showed up um the guy that i met in my my dream um ended up being uh his name we found out his name was darnay uh even though he would also go by a boga and we learned all this when my my daughter turned 17 and became sexually active. I, I initiated her right before I, I went to Mexico and her relationship to the, to the spirit was like nothing I had seen. So by this time mm-hmm. I had, you know, worked down in, in Mexico, a guy, I, like I said, I'd gone to San Francisco to get my disability signed. And when I was picked up at the airport by Randy, he goes, we got a client. I had a dream he died. You got to check on him every 15 minutes. I said, Randy, Randy, why did you give him Ibogaine? <laughs> I mean, you got a dream. Like, right. like I started, what started happening was this medicalized detox format or formula for using Ibogaine. There was, there was another part of it that was starting to bleed through. I was starting to hear the voice of the medicine inside me. And I was, able to see people's visions when they would explain them to me i could see Mm. them in my mind's eye and that was just a gift so there was some kind of reassurance that i was doing what i was supposed to be doing because i was getting these little signs or whatever Mm. these little callings of that you're not insane this is real the spirit is is a is a manifest it's it's like you can almost touch it Mm. um but witnessing that death really shook me up and not so much, you know, the 45 minutes of getting this guy's CPR, you know, even though he's gone. Um, and then the cops coming and then, uh, you know, the detectives coming and right. we kind of covered it up. And um, 
they took the body and I had to call the family. And like, I'd never done anything like that before. And he called the wife. She, she just starts wailing on the phone, you know. Uh, it, it hit me really hard. And, uh, and then the brother had to come down to get the body back to, um, to the States. And, you know, I let them stay at the clinic and I picked them up at the airport and I made them meals like I would like a, like a client that was there and, you know, took them to the beach and tried to make it as, tried to make it as, as right as possible. Right. Um, they weren't blaming us. They knew that his brother was in bad shape mm -hmm. and the guy had a pacemaker and it was like, I started having doubts about these people I was working with, you know, it's like, how did this happen? How, right. like, this is through like, the cracks like that. I go, I'm just, a, I'm just be a beginner and I know better than this, you know, like a week later, another guy came and these guys that had filmed double size me, the documentary mm -hmm. had found some guy in New York, brought him out to, to, to TJ and wanted to film it, wanted to film this, this guy going through this experience. Mm. And they failed to tell us that he was a, a psychotic mm. uh, and schizophrenic. And they had stopped taking his medication. And this guy took Ibogaine. And by the next morning, you know, we didn't even have high-speed internet. We had Messenger. And I'm messaging mm. Randy going, this guy's about to pop. And he's like, what are you talking about? I go, this guy... I've been around enough people with, with mental health issues, right. and uh, and I go, he's gonna pop, man. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna break. And Randy's like, oh, that's a good thing. That means the medicine's dead. I go, no, 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 Randy, Randy. Mm. I'm, what I'm telling you is, this guy is a true psychotic, um, schizophrenic. Mm. He just threw five gallons of water on the doctor. He's been naked all night and all day, right. but you know, been trying to hit on Beth, who didn't even really like guys right she mm -hmm. girls and and he, he was being really rude and obnoxious and you know like you know somebody like this in any normal situation you would right. ask them to leave but the guys like still coming down off of ibogaine yeah so they filmed the whole thing and it whatever right and he snaps so i leave and he snaps at one o'clock and trashes the whole house they call me i said everybody get out of the house just leave go home just leave them in there. We called these guys and said, you know, come and get this motherfucker. Um, and then they revealed that he, you know, needed medication and brought the medication. And so uh, here's another one that was like, all of a sudden I just had this real lack of trust. Now mm -hmm. Asha was packed and had given up her job and given up her place to live. And they were moving to San Diego with the kids and that they were going to live in San Diego. And I was going to, this was going to be our new life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called Asha and said, I'm, I'm out of here, man. Right. I, I'm leaving. Um, I don't, I don't want to work with these guys. I don't think it's going to work out. Um, and she was pretty upset. And they came up with a solution that they were going to get in the car and find a new home. And that's how we ended up in Portland. Mm. Um, but after this guy had, had his, uh, his mental breakdown, the word had kind of gotten out to the landlord that somebody had died there. Right. And they basically said, okay, we want you guys out of here. Mm -hmm. So 
There was a whole period of time where we didn't work. I'm down there alone. The kids had already gone home by now because after the death, I wanted them out of there. Um, and uh, it was Father's Day, and I went out and used methamphetamine. And I just went off the fucking rail for mm-hmm. about five days. Ended up in jail in, in San Diego. You know, I just sit there for about four or five days till finally I figured out I could bail myself out. But after that episode, they're kind of going, Rocky, you really freaking went off the rail. Mm-hmm. And it, it was dramatic. And uh, so we kind of said, okay, I think we're all going to part ways. I kind of felt like everything had failed. Yeah. Um, Disillusioned probably a little bit uh, with the medicine as well, because you're like, oh, well, these people administering it haven't taken care. So maybe the whole thing, Maybe I was just fucking making up what I was experiencing. I guess it's not true. Um, a lot, a lot of stuff like that. A lot of, a lot of questioning, a lot of misunderstanding. Hmm. We were always trying to figure out, like, why did I have the experience I had, and then this guy, it just bounces off of him. He's the same right. asshole that came through the door. Like, like nothing changed. Hmm. So how, 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 you know? So I'm trying to figure out the method. You can't figure it out. Like, yep. like. They kept saying, you're not going to get it. You're not, there is no, there is no consistency of, of, of comparison to other people when it comes to this medicine. Yeah. I mean, even though LSD, you kind of get a consistency, you know, one hit is this much, two hits mm-hmm. is, you know, there's this whole dose based concept or something. And Iboga breaks all of these rules. Like yeah. they, they don't apply. And there's several of them in comparison to other things. And, what we know here in the West as mm. kind of like natural laws, you know, if you take one is good, if you take two is better, mm-hmm. you know, all these things, they don't apply to a boga. So, you know, I came home and, you know, they had already found a place up in Portland and eventually, you know, I made my way up there. And after a, about a year of just being clean and sober and I was, traumatized you know from this whole like nine months so i'm kind of like just starting to get my get my bearings again and i'm sitting on the front step and i'm and i'm i'm waiting for i'd already made contact with with eric Taub, who had called me and said why 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 aren't you doing treatments like you've got a family to support mm-hmm. and he goes you're you're like a medically trained you know i became provider and i'm like well, yeah yeah i know but it's really important that I have a house that's established for it. And I'm mm-hmm. going to go to France. I know Carl Nahur. He's already said that he would, you know, provide medicine for me. And I need mm-hmm. to get to, you know, buy a plane ticket and set up. Richie's like, oh, oh, it's just, you know, set and setting's really important to you. Because they were still doing it out of motels and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. I won't. I go, I won't do it, man. <laughs> That's go, not going to work anymore. <laughs> I go, I've been trained in a medical, you know, system. Mm-hmm. So I understand the values of, of medical detox, even though they're, you know, somewhat sparse, but that was my foundation. So, you know, mm-hmm. now I'm in the States, it's illegal. Um, basically I got a house and I started doing treatments in a spare bedroom and, and then I was working up in like Orcas Island and, Utah and Reno, Nevada, and going down to San Francisco and working with um, gay prostitutes, mm. you know, with a friend there who was. So I had this little couple of years where I was kind of rotating around the states, providing sessions, mostly in people's homes. 
Um, you know, twice I tried to do it at a hot spring, you know, kind of setting and both times it didn't go well, which yeah. was a confirmation that you have to have a stable environment that you know what's happened in this environment mm -hmm. for at least a few weeks so that yep. you can prepare the environment for um, a container, what we call the container uh, for people to work in while mm -hmm. they're taking this medicine. So these are all new laws that were basically coming into my heart that were, you have to have these things in order to do this. Right. You know, and so we're, we're slowly kind of marching along through time and, you know, having pretty good, you know, nothing bad happening basically um, until right before uh, I'd already made the decision. Richie had contacted me. It took about a year to pay him back for that five grams that he sent me in the mail. Oh, I forgot mm -hmm. to say. So I'm, back to sitting on the porch waiting for this five grams to arrive that Richie said, Hey, why don't you just do a couple treatments a month and help mm. your family out? Like mm -hmm. you can do that. Right. I'll send you, I'll send you five grand. You pay me back when you can. Right. So who comes up the, the walkway is the brother of the guy who died is a postal delivery guy wow. in Oregon. What? He brings the envelope of Ibogaine and he walks up the stairs and goes, Rocky. You're like, hey. I, I almost can remember the guy's name. He goes, what are you doing here? I thought you were in Mexico and you were going to be there. And I said, no, we had a falling out. I go after your brother. We had another kind of incident, nothing mm. as bad as that, but decided that this isn't going to work out. Right. I go, it's really amazing to see you. And I'm signing this little thing and he's handing me this letter with Ibogaine in it mm -hmm. to kill his brother. So there was like this depth right. of responsibility that sank into my heart mm -hmm. that like, we're not fucking around here, man. Yeah. This is no fucking joke. You're not buying a shit online mm -hmm. and taking it with somebody that's going to watch you. It was like, there was no, there was no bull. There was like a no bullshit thing, whatever meter that was like, really, if you're going to mm -hmm. do this, you really have to decide. And at the time I was still kind of like, you know, doing, you know, carpet jobs. And so by this time now I did my first treatment in December, three weeks after the methamphetamine five day run, I did another treatment, a little bit lower dose. So the mm -hmm. first one was like 21 milligrams total milligrams per kilo. The second one was 16 milligrams per kilo, but I wasn't detoxing off of anything. Mm -hmm. And then eight months later, after being in Portland and getting hooked up with a therapist and all this, like I hadn't started doing the sessions yet. Mm -hmm. I had my third session with a woman who had been to Gabon and had been initiated into the Desumba tradition with Bernadette Riponet, who is one of the 13 grandmothers, mm. and had invited me to come and do a traditional Iboga session right. where we did it on mats with a fireplace. We couldn't do mm -hmm. it out, out in the woods because of the time of year. But that experience was super profound. Mm. It was only 10 milligrams, single dose flood, but I had, you know, gotten all the drugs out of my system. So I had a physical detox. Mm. I did a mental detox and for eight months healed from that. Had done inner work, processed the trauma of the death, had, you know, 
kind of begun to establish uh, what we call the, the dream groups mm -hmm. by Paul Levy. That's where the awakening in the dream house came from was Paul mm -hmm. Levy had the awaken in the dream groups. And so we were processing in these groups and it was like awesome. Um, it was kind of a Jungian type right. uh, psychology mm -hmm. and it just went right alongside with, with, with the Iboga. Mm -hmm. And after that third session, at the end of it, Iboga said, well, it was a wonderful, wonderful session. I mean, these little spirit guys said, what do you want to know? They showed me anything I asked for. I relished in the fact that all of the answers are all in the molecules of stardust that are built into our bodies. All the answers to everything we need to know is built into us. All we have to do is access them. Mm -hmm. That Iboga is just one aspect. You can't stay high on Iboga. It'll kill you right. to be able to stay in that. But there are practices throughout the world that recognize and know these truths, like the Buddhist and like, you know, the Hindu. So, um, you know, I just relished in that 20 minutes of just knowing that I know um, that I got to ask all the questions I ever had about mm -hmm. how things work and, you know, how the earth was made and I got to see an alien race and, mm -hmm. you know, like all these, these things. Uh, and then at the end it said, I want you to, I, I want you to do this. And it, it outlined the clinic and it gave me the, the, the instructions what I needed, you know, uh, the, the warm salt water, a hot spring, papaya, mm -hmm. coconuts, bananas, and sugar cane. All of those are primary for the stability and the supplementation and the electrolytes mm -hmm. to keep people stable. Tropical environment, warmth, natural food, you know, like it had right. this whole list. Um, different herbs, you know, a river for doing river cleanses. Mm -hmm. um, and I had somebody that wanted to help out had gone down to, I said, we're going to do it in Puerto Vallarta. Originally we were going to do it in San Miguel and it fell through, mm -hmm. but that was with an investor. And then Richie came back two months later and said, Hey, do you still want to open that clinic? And I said, yeah, but I got to do it like my way, like hundred percent. Right. And I need to have 10 grand. I need a computer and I need 25 grams of hydrochloride up front. And I need to know mm -hmm. that I can always get that. Right. of that same quality which comes from italy which was you know the original source that i took that we still work with today and um he said yeah and i said cool right <laughs> <laughs> so like this is in like july by october i'm in mexico this guy had had rented a house for me for six weeks in sayalita i'd never been there before i'd only been to puerto vallarta for, uh, for a short my first sober vacation with Colleen, you know, so I, you know, kind of was gravitating towards Puerto Vallarta. And this guy said, no, there's nothing here. There's nothing South. He said, go North. And they found the little fishing village of Sayalita. And then mm. three miles, three miles North is the little village of San Pancho, which has a hospital, uh, a good hospital actually. And so, you know, I got picked up at 11 o'clock from a guy that I had treated in my bedroom who went into Tursad syndrome three days into the session mm. and I had to call 911. And basically it was a lack of magnesium. No, mm. with, him it, with him it was uh, potassium. Mm. But in that first year, all, all methadone or high dose opiate, all 50 years old or older, all with 30 year or longer habits, at day three, their hearts 
didn't have enough of the chemicals, potassium or magnesium and sodium to keep a, a consistent heart rhythm mm. and went into these episodes where they yeah. stopped breathing and you had to do CPR to bring them back. Mm. So was, we had this happened three times relatively close together. So anyway, this one guy who, you know, we got him to the hospital, I gave him the potassium, had to come up with a story. Right. Uh, you know, the doctor's like, what happened? And you're like, uh, <laughs> So, so he, so he took Ibogaine. I said, yeah, yeah, he took Ibogaine up in Canada. Oh, up in Canada, he took it. I said, how'd he end up with you? Well, we're friends from AA. And yeah. he was on his way back, and he called me. He said he wasn't feeling good. He knew I was in Portland. I said, come to my house. You can, uh, you can kick it with me for a few days. Oh, really? So he came, and he kicked it with you after he took Ibogaine in Canada. I said, yeah. She goes, so that's your story. I said, yeah. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah. But they wanted to Narcan him. Like, as soon as they came in, they were like, they had the Narcan out. And I'm like, dude, like, he, this guy hasn't taken opiates in three days. Like, don't do that to him. Like, you have to stand He's not up. overdosing. You can't, you have, you have to watch, like, anytime you have a client, you don't give them to a doctor. You have right. to stand over them and protect them because people do crazy stuff. Um, so anyway, this guy that nearly died and everything that lived through it, Pick me up. He goes, I, I have a house in Sayulit. I've been there for 35 years. I'll pick you mm -hmm. up at the airport. And, um, <laughs> you know, so you, can stay in my, you can stay in my studio above the garage. And it's nighttime. And, you know, it could be any scummy, dusty town in Mexico, you know. And I woke up in the morning, and there's this thing in the fucking tree. The tree branch is going up and down, and it's an iguana, like a huge <laughs> iguana. And I walk out and I look out and it's the, it's the Bay of Sayulita and it's paradise. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, you know, right. like, here's the spot. And Cause I, I didn't ask questions. I just followed directions and intuition. A couple of days later, I met Dr. Jose Luis who couldn't speak any English. I couldn't speak any Spanish. I showed him the documentary, uh, Rite of Passage, which I got to, I, I participated in several documentaries hmm. that first year. And with Ben De, De Luna, and those guys were great, right? They came from Amsterdam and they did this whole documentary and they went to Africa and did, uh, and so I showed the doctor this and then I called Martin Polanco and I put him on the phone and then I said, you, I'm going to do this. You, will you be my doctor? And he was like, yeah, sure, man, but you got to teach me English. Mm, so me and doc are still like, like blood brothers. Like mm. I, 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 I never met another man like this guy. Um, some real essential characters showed up for this without knowing that we were showing up. One was doc. One was Robert Germain, who I picked up out of the middle of the street with a plastic jug of vodka I said, get in the car and he never left mm. and uh and then roberto estrada who ran the integration program who i treated for methamphetamine that first year and you know kind of bounced off the walls for a couple of months but then got into the groove and he was like i'm going to be your aftercare guy because the first aftercare was in sialita with bobby robert payne and uh had been running it. Bobby's in New York. He's still involved. Um, 
kind of hangs with Dimitri and those guys. And um, so we kind of began a program, you know, we got the dream house. Somehow I talked some people into buying it. My mother, you know, worked in San Francisco at the furniture mart and got donations from the floor models because they, mm. ch- you know, mm-hmm. every three months they have to change seasons. Right. So we got a whole container shipped down to Mexico of like leather couches and, and maple dressers mm-hmm. and a beautiful maple dining table with a swivel stool. I mean, it was mm-hmm. like, and you can't get this furniture in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the whole container came in. These guys bought the house and all of a sudden the, within like almost a year to, to the day mm-hmm. uh, upon a, arrival, we had the dream house. Yeah. And, um, and it kind of, and that was kind of where it started from there. And uh, yeah, I'll take a breather for a second. Yeah, I, I love that story. It's so, so interesting. I think the audience is going to love it too. I, what really captivates me about it is the, you know, Carl Jung had this idea of synchronicities leading, paving the road to your highest potential and your highest purpose. And what stands out about your story is as you started to see these synchronicities and take them as the guideposts that they were, you know, the guy who was the brother of the guy who died delivering the Ibogaine to you, all of these different synchronicities, you look at them as guideposts and you go, cool, directionally, I'm going the right way right now. And I need to keep going this way. And as you do that, it's nuts. And I think people find this, but like, it's crazy how quickly something can come together just over the course of a couple of years, just over the course of a year, when you really pay attention to those moments and go, Ooh, I'm headed in the right direction right now. Like the universe has given me a wink and telling me that over here's the good stuff. This is where you're supposed to be going. Well, we called it dreaming up. Like in the dream group, that was the thing is you're either dreaming up or you're dreaming down. Hmm. Right? And so this whole idea that you could literally dream up your own reality, that we were, that there, that you have some control over this. And, and what, we were witnessing with Iboga is, is, is very soon after you take a boga, let's say within four or five days, the contracts that you have with everybody, you know, have been shifted. So you may not have even talked to these people and somehow energetically, this message has traveled around the globe to everybody that you know. And suddenly just by the tone in your voice, the people on the other end of the phone or the people standing in front of you, don't have the hooks that they used to have Mm -hmm. to get you to do what they used to get you to do. Mm -hmm. One of the first reactions was I had five women in my life, important women, Asha, my mother, my ex-girlfriend, you know, they were so fucking angry at me because those hooks had been taken out Mm -hmm. and the passive Rocky that just kind of nodded his way through. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was gone. There was no way to penetrate me anymore. And they energetically could feel it even before I opened my mouth. So there was, this became normal way of life. Like this whole thing about the synchronicities and the meeting of people and the key characters and the locations and the materials. And it was like, you couldn't dispute that this spirit was riding on my shoulder, Mm -hmm. whispering in my ear, and had told us when I had initiated Delaney right before I left for Mexico, 
the spirit said, I, I, I won't let anything bad happen to you. And anytime I can, I won't let any bad people come. Mm. So he'd already seen what we were going to be doing. Like there was already this understanding of what I was about to do was right. already, we call it, it's written in the book of Lords. That was the term. And we used to use this when we would screen our clients because one of the, the first things that we feel for is, are these people called to the medicine? Because if somebody's called to the medicine, then I have a responsibility to provide it if I can. Right. In other words, if, if, if I can help this person, if mostly based on my experience and my capacity to receive people, if they're too sick or too old or too mm-hmm. beat up, I have, you know, we had like cutoff points where they really needed a fully staffed medical supervised right. situation. The way we were doing it was basically we're going through deep screening with my doctor at the house um, under observation for four to five days, stabilizing them on on morphine, not, you know, as a, a long acting morphine. So they couldn't manipulate it and shoot it or snort it or squirrel it or, you know, whatever. And I mean, we start figuring it out. Like we start figuring out we need to supplement them. They need to have magnesium, potassium. So, so we started getting this like outline of the ideal treatment arena pre- pre- presentation. And it ended up becoming a two week thing. And it took mm-hmm. like a whole week to do the preparation and then the main session. And then they would go, we have to get them out of the treatment house and into the integration house. Just, just getting them from one house into the other house had a profound change of the treatments over now. Right. You'll still be doing some boosters to do some cleanup, but this part of your treatment's done. So we, it was like broken up into these little these little stages, and it's like okay, the preparation period's done, and we'd wait for what we would see like green lights in our mind's eye, you know, from red to yellow to green, like like whatever it was that would have been standing in a way has mm-hmm. to be resolved. They'd have to have bowel movements. They'd have to. You know, they'd have to eat the food that we provide for a couple of days and it has to move through their body. So we had like all these little standards, these little rules, whatever. And they started kind of locking together, you know. And so by year three, you know, we had like, that's when Roberto took over the um, integrate. We couldn't call it aftercare because it wasn't really structured. Mm-hmm. But it was, we, we built this three bedroom, three three bedroom, three bath level. And then we built three studios and then we built three more studios on top. This took about two years to build this house. Um, but that was the aftercare house, you know, so everybody had their own bathroom in the main kitchen and we had a little sitting area with the palapa and that was the hangout. That's where everybody hung out after mm-hmm. treatment. We were pot friendly, which had its pros and cons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, marijuana was really helpful uh, when you're coming off of opiates, right. it really does help. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather give somebody a brownie um, than a Valium. 100%. You know, it just the benzo thing. Um, you know, and then of course there's access to all these things in Mexico and then alcohol. Mm-hmm. I started drinking again. I hadn't drank from the time I had been 24, and around 41, I, I uh, picked up a beer and didn't um, want to do cocaine immediately. Right. Anyway, oh. oh wow i'm cured i'm cured i can i can drink socially which i did for about five years mm-hmm. and 
and then I couldn't, and then I became an alcoholic, and then I had to go through that whole chapter. Mm-hmm. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it the the line between being a, a facilitator and a client, a boss, and a student get really, really misconstrued. Like mm-hmm. it's really hard to know which is which, especially when you're learning from every client uh-huh. you're learning so you can't ever like become a whatever a pro or a uh, accomplished uh, provider right uh, it takes years you know like the, to become an nganga let's say um or a shaman it's like I, I i was too late i was too late in the game yeah one sense i had some of the characteristics of of being something like that because of how I approached addiction and how I would literally become the addiction. If they were other compounds other than the street drugs that were in my generation, mm-hmm. I would have worked with those. Right. You know, but in our generation, it was the drugs that are available, heroin, coke, meth, you know, alcohol. And there was an emphasis on doing it alone that most of my drug use and all that was, alone except for some of the isolated um social i mean as soon as i get high the first thing i want to do is get away from everybody and right. like, i mean i just don't want to do anything in front of all these people to embarrass myself later mm-hmm. so it was like because i know that i will um so you know it becomes a very isolated world my drug world and, and it was it was designed that way so that i could take care of myself in times of need and then I could somehow come back to try to do this thing called life. Yeah. Um, so. I think it's why that the broken healer archetype is such a prevalent one. And I think it's so accurate because what I see over and over again, and what I notice in myself is if you had never gone through all the struggle of addiction, it would be really difficult for you to be effective in helping people with addiction because you wouldn't like, if I'm someone with addiction, I come to you and you have no experience with it. I'm like, well, what the fuck do you know? <laughs> but because you have that um, experience and frame of reference for it, it gives you that empathy to be able to each person that comes through the door, you actually know what they're going through. And you actually have an idea of some of the things they've dealt with. So you can actually speak to that and catch them on that level and go like, hey, Right now, I know you're like, holy shit, this is too much. I'm coming down. Uh, trust me, it gets better. Well, it was one of the codes was that everybody, everybody, that, including the maids, including the doctor, anybody and everybody, including the parents of R- Roberto at the integration, everybody needed to take medicine. His wife, you know, anybody that was working with people had to take medicine on some level they didn't have to all do an initiatory dose or whatever but they had to understand what we were doing uh and with doc it took a couple of years for him to get the window i mean that guy was a busy man um he worked at the general hospital around the corner and you know on the weekends which was great because we'd be doing session and he'd be there and um you know if there was ever a problem i knew where doc was he was right around the corner um but yeah, you know, him taking medicine, this guy had never done a line of cocaine or anything like, I mean, it, it was, it was powerful for him, you know, like, you know, his comment was, unless somebody's dying, they shouldn't take this. 
right. like unless it's life or death like his whole idea about what are these spiritual like chasers are he thought yeah. that we were all crazy he's like mm -hmm. who would want to take this you know and i go well most people you know really don't like it like right. it's not a fun warm fuzzy drug so but yeah, yeah that became a code of uh of that so let's talk a little bit about initiatory aspects because i think in my opinion and something i've seen a lot with just people i've worked with and people i've dealt with initiation into different phases of life is something that's really really missing from western culture and a lot of people have a lot of difficulty and you kind of mirrored that in your story a little bit that you kind of had an initiation into official fatherhood official manhood and then kind of felt this revitalization so i'd just be curious like what are some of the things you've seen as using these medicines as initiation. I know you mentioned your daughter going through an initiation with it at age 17, was it? And just like, talk a little bit about how these things can be useful to demarcate certain points in our life where we process and pass into a new phase. Well, you know, I, I, I really didn't start learning about the Buiti until I got to, to Portland. I remember, um, I was packing, it was four in the morning. I remember crying on the floor in Tijuana, going, you, you're gonna have to find somebody for me to teach me about this stuff. Like I, I need a plant teacher, I need a plant teacher. And a guy named Scott Close um, showed up at the dream group uh, a couple of, couple of weeks after I began, he had returned from Peru and had done Cambo, had wanted to go to, to uh, ayahuasca Anyway, this guy, this guy talked to the plants, all right? This guy was like, you know, I mean, they used to joke, you know, Scott talks to the trees, right? But he, he really does. Like, he gets songs from them. He, he's written a really magnificent book of the plants of the Pacific Northwest, um, a, guide, a guide to medicinal plants of the Pacific Northwest, which mm. he published. And he's, you know, he became what he was supposed to become. So there was a whole little core group of us at the dream group that all had taken ibogaine within the group mm. so coming back so what what had started happening was you know i'd been doing a lot of detox work down in 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 san diego a little bit of what they called psycho spiritual and then when i got to portland it would kind of flip the other way i was doing mostly psycho spiritual and a little bit of detox and so i had mentioned before what was the common thread that ran through people's treatments like what were the things that were the same um, with everybody and then how all the variables were which whether it was be dose or whether it be experience or whether it be visionary or you know like we were trying you know but the one common denominator that we found was that if we approach this from an from an initiatory point of view regardless of the reason why you're coming you're basically you're skipping the addiction and you're going to the core. All right. And so that became kind of our framework for what the dream house represented was, is that we provide this initiatory experience. And as a result of going through this initiatory experience, it's going to address your drug dependency or your chemical dependency or whatever, whatever obsessive compulsive um, reason that you were attracted to a boga um, people seem to feel like they had to have a reason 
Um, and normally they would base it. I mean, I remember somebody going, I'm addicted to chocolate. I go, you don't have right. to have it. She goes, no, I really am. Uh, and I actually did two, two cacao dependencies. Like they mm. were like chocolate addicts. Like, and it worked, you know, it's like, yeah. um, but we started realizing we, we have to utilize the initiatory experience as a platform. Right. And then we can build from there. Now, so I think as, as, as an aside, it's just super smart because with addictions, it's a response to something deeper lodged always in yeah. almost every single case I've ever seen. It's two people can take the same compound. I can take meth and someone else can take meth and one person doesn't get addicted and one person does. Well, what's the difference? It's your underlying psychological makeup. So approaching it at that level first just makes a ton of sense. Cause it's like, let's get to the root of the issue and deal with that. And, that, and this became, this became a very like clear, like clear, like intent. Also at that time around when this was really like becoming the code, um, my daughter in her session had a very visual experience and she was able to talk about it. For some reason I was at Fred Meyers in Portland and I bought a little hand um, recorder, mm -hmm. a little microphone tape recorder. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I bought it that mm -hmm. day, but I remember pulling it out and putting the batteries in it and loading in the little thing. And I go, are you ready? And she goes, Boga says, and she just went on for an hour and a half. <laughs> Amazing. And just told me what Aboga was saying. And nobody had ever done that. Now, my daughter was like a true, clear spirit. Mm. She wasn't asking for anything from the Aboga. Mm -hmm. She wasn't coming to it because she was in crisis. Mm -hmm. She wasn't addicted to anything. She had some traumatic experiences in her first relationships and study. I mean, she had stuff she hadn't told me about. Let's put it right. that way. Um, but she she wasn't an unhealthy young woman. Right. Um, you know, she had some weight issues when she was younger and didn't feel good. About, you know, some esteem mm -hmm. issues and, you know, like a normal young woman, right? right? You know, going through puberty, all this crap, right? You know, I mean, it's brutal. It's brutal being a teenager. It's brutal. I hated, I hated high school. You know, it's just, oh. ugh, you know, it was just brutal. So, you know, she, she was the one I was like, dad, you got to get, you got to get me out of Marin County. And then that's where it's like, I'm all strung out and I'm going, how am I going to get, how am I going to get her out of here? I know exactly what she's talking about, but I am like strung out. How am I going to help her? And then right. I said, we're in Mexico. And it was like, oh, wow, dad came through. Um, but, but of no, like it, it didn't, not because of anything I did, except mm -hmm. for making a decision that I was going to take this medicine no matter what. Um, but you know, the the emphasis on the on the uh, initiation in her in her thing, she goes, Dad, the the Iboga wants to uh, Iboga wants to to give you a message, mm -hmm. and he goes, "There's a man from Africa. He's coming. I want you to watch out for this guy. He knows he knows the songs. He knows the dances. He knows why." fire makes shadow across the sand mm. it was a key phrase it was a it was a it was a it was a it was like a you know i don't know it was a key phrase right 
so incantation <laughs> so i don't know if you've seen like the little symbol on the on the on the on this website but it, it looks kind of like a yin yang where mm. the center of the yin yang expanded and we used to call it balance evolved and it came mm. in a dream like a Jungian symbol right and i had had a, a low fever that night and I woke up in the morning and my daughter was getting ready to go to school. And I said, Galini, Galini, I had a dream about this, this image. And I went and picked her up from school and she had drawn it on a piece of paper. And she goes, is this it? I go, Galini, that's oh, it. That's fucking it. <laughs> that's, 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 the, that's the dream symbol. Mm -hmm. And it became, uh, and it looks kind of like a, an eight, you mm -hmm. know. So we knew that's, that 8808 was a special day, right? the 8th of August in 2008. So around midnight on 2008, I'm checking the news. I've got a session going on upstairs. Um, Russia had invaded Georgia that day, but really there was no like thing that happened on 8808. At midnight, I got an email from this guy, Mogenda McCulloch. Uh, Mogenda McCulloch is Patrick McCulloch. And he went by Magenda and he goes, you could tell he didn't speak English as a primary language, just by the way he wrote. And he said, you know, I really like what you're doing. Uh, I'm interested in your work. I'm a 10th generation Nganga from Gabon. I've been in the States. I was sent by Bwiti and I need to meet you. And where do you get your boga? Mm. I wrote him, I said, well, we don't work with a boga. We work with Ibogaine. Mm-hmm. And we've been waiting for you for five right. years, right? We were told you're coming. We coming, right? And we've been watching out for this guy. Like, you know, we'd see somebody and we'd meet somebody in town. Mm -hmm. We go, is that him? Like, what do you Could think? Be. Is that him? <laughs> you know, and here's this big six foot something, you know, 200 pound African guy, really dark black, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, uh, no, that, that, that's him. So he was yeah. in our living room, like within three weeks, you know, and he stuck around for about six months and for five and a half months of it, it was awesome. And in the last two weeks, we had like a little bit of a crash. Hmm. Um, but he, his whole point of coming was to bring a boga and ibogaine together. Hmm. Um, and so all during that time was, was about learning initiation. So I learned the river wash ceremony. We had already been using the Buidi music in sessions because you could control how the session goes right, based on the music. You don't use the music really loud. You, you use it more like a background, like kind of filling the rooms with, mm -hmm. with, with, with pillows to kind of absorb some of the space. Yeah. But you don't want it to be a dominating feature. And if you're not paying attention to breathing music, it's they're polyrhythms. They create meditative dream states just mm -hmm. by the rhythm itself right and so we knew that there was like this whole technology ancient technology built into this african music right. that's traditional to, to to the to the aboga it's a part of the set and setting that's i think often overlooked is like that is a the soundscape if you will of the area is so important it control it literally controls mm -hmm. the 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 the, 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 yeah. the rhythm of the ceremony ceremony 
mess up the medicine. And and then there was other things that we adopted. And I kind of started leaning towards this bleedy thing. And mm. everybody does. You know, everybody gets so excited. They, they feel like they've touched bleedy and they feel like they've touched something sacred. Mm. You know, and Richie's like, Rocky, I've been there. They're as screwed up as everybody else in the world. Mm. You know, like, well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's a bogus it's bleedy. Mm. Um, you know, but that, that only went on for a few months. And then, you know, three times I was going to go there to do an initiation. Mm. And then I realized, wait a minute, um, I'm working with a spirit that came through the Ibogaine. Normally, the, the spirit that comes through the Iboga is feminine. And here we have this grandfather spirit, kind of like, kind of a hardhead, kind, mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, calls you on your shit, kind of, mm -hmm. you know, no, you can't, you can't, you can't con this guy, right? You know, and he kind of controls the crossroads, right? He lets you in and out of addiction. He lets right. you in, in and out of places. So he had like a, and he always dressed really nice, normally with a top hat or a mask. I mean, he always appeared in like 1930s kind of get up mm -hmm. to me, you know, top hat. Mm -hmm. uh, but he would appear differently to different people. Right. And, um, you know, and Delaney, of course, she's, she's like best friends with this guy. And he's like mm -hmm. under all this stuff. And he did this whole healing on her and cut her open and mm -hmm. let all the bad, bad things that that men had done to her and it came out like bats and they turned mm -hmm. into butterflies and he said you know there's not much work i need to do here you know you're looking pretty good like he did a psychic surgery on her right like he mm -hmm. like was in a morgue on a slab and he did this psychic surge and i can see all of this while she's saying it in my mind's eye like i like accurately and uh which just as an aside like there's something really beautiful about that because just knowing the way that most humans work without that sort of psychic surgery early on those traumas become entrenched and had she not had that experience you could project 10 years down the road where those things have spun into full-blown patterns and complexes and life turns out totally different so i just I pretty firmly believe that within reasons, getting in there a little bit early like that, you know, yeah. 17, 18, 19, 20, to take out some of the bullshit that's already made its way in can really affect the trajectory of someone's life. And that's the whole belief in Bweedy is, is that we as parents project onto, we, even though mm -hmm. we try not to, we project, I want you to go to school and be a doctor. Mm -hmm. I want you, we, you know, so all that projection stuff that comes from our social structure, our inner family structure, our, our intimate expanded family structure, you know, our relatives and stuff, all of those projections are basically released and they're very resilient at, at 17, 18, 19 years old. In other words, you can't really hurt them with the medicine, right? They're, mm -hmm. they, they pretty much bounce back. You know, they're, they're young. You're young, man. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, I can tell you as time wears on, Iboga gets harder and harder <laughs> to deal with. Uh, so, you know, so, you know, Magenda came and that was like, that was the beginning of a new chapter. By then I'd been there, you know, almost five years. I'd already made the call out to Asha a couple of times. My son was turning 18. So he came down when he was 17. Same thing. Had his first sexual experience on the beach in Sayulita. He was all grinning the next morning. And I'm like, what happened to you? And he goes, oh, you know, I was kind of talking about it. Said, well, I think it's time that you work with a medicine, son. This is like, this is your calling, right? Yeah. So he did, you know, and he didn't like it as much as Delaney. It wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. But he put his PlayStation away a couple of days later. 
he quit smoking pot from the time he woke up in the morning. Mm. He didn't wear shoes for the entire next four or five months. <laughs> I mean, he became, he became a little tribal being right. in this little village with these little guys that went surfing every day and, you know, and let their hair grow long and never wore shoes. I mean, like, or shirts, you know, and he became golden brown and, it was like, wow, this is really cool. Like I got to see how it really had a positive influence on his life too. And they, it was a strong dose for him. Like my daughter, I was a little bit more kind of scared. Mm -hmm. um, but with my son, I was a little bit, a little bit more thrustier. Um, but you know, it, it was, it, again, it was the confirmation of, of the initiation that was the key uh, element to how all these other therapies could work. Mm. Now, now, since then, we've learned a lot about how to work with the medicine in other ways, because not everybody needs that level of, of experience. And so we had to start to determine whether that was what was being called for or not. Right. Because there were people that were not prepared for a completely life-changing, life-altering, life-moving experience. Because a boga moves things. It mm -hmm. moves energy. It moves beings. And so, you know, we had to start like kind of like really determining if that was the proper path for each individual. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of cases, it was about getting them off the drugs. Yeah. We're just going to work on getting you off the drugs. And if you want to come back in six, eight months, you know, like we, uh, we normally won't work with people until at least four months have passed before we'll work with a, a boga again which, you know, is disappointing to some people because if they relapse or something, but that became a standard is you can't stack it because it can really have, it can have, it can have negative side effects. You can't, you got to give it, I think with any plant medicine, it needs room to breathe and it needs room to allow the new patterns that you're trying to build the sprout. And what I think was really interesting, kind of mirrored in your own story, it was like so often you go into this big experience and you come out the other side and you're a bit different. But I think the most difficult part of doing that is that, you know, you had Asha, you had, you had your mother kind of giving you pushback initially. Cause they're like, you changed. And a lot of times we have these structures around us of people that we care about who have really patterned us as a certain person. And when we de-pattern that and we become a different person, there's a lot of pushback and you can't, you can't always do that all at once. It's a really painful process that takes some time to like, Hey, no, really I'm different now. And I need you to treat me as such. It's, 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 it's a lot. And it, and it, you know, you, you try to, you know, we would try to explain these things to people, you know, mm -hmm. mostly starting with the, the screening, you know, like you have to get your EKG and blood work before you come down. Can't I do it when I get down there? No, because if you get down here, and those reports are bad, what are we going to do with you? Oh, no, I don't care. If, if I can't qualify when I get down there, then it's my fault, whatever. But then they would do it, and then we'd had it happen, and then the guy it was like, we can't give you medicine. you know. Yeah. And it was like, I told you this. Like, like why wouldn't you do it up? You know. So we started really having to, to create these, these hoops. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has money, they think they got it made. Well, I'll just pay you, right? So it's like, no, 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 no. We have to create these little hoops for you to mm -hmm. jump through because you've got to have, you've got to pay a price. There's got to be yeah. a, an exchange of energy. If money, you know, for most people, money's the bite, right? Because we all don't got a lot of mm -hmm. money. 
you know, but if somebody does have a lot of money and there's no bite to it, right. we have to create a different kind of bite. There has, there has to be some kind of pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. So by being in Mexico, that, that really helped by literally creating obstacles that they had to really show that they really wanted this treatment and that that, that, that was mm-hmm. what the right path was. We talked about, are they called to it? Have they dreamt about it? You know, these were first screening right. questions. They weren't about how much are you taking? or It was more about, can you take Ibogaine? Mm-hmm. Can you take Ibogaine with us? You know, and are we the right place to do it? Because by now, there's new clinics that were opening, mm-hmm. like Claire had taken over the Ibogaine Association. So she was up in TJ. And Claire did, between Claire and I, for a couple of years now, the two of us were doing as many treatments as the whole world combined. Like, right. we were rocking and rolling. I mean, yeah. we, we had, we, we were like, both just pretty much, you know, in a, in a, in, in, we were working for months at a time, um, you know, every day. And, um, and then we get a break, you know, and fall apart and put ourselves back together and, it's right. start all over, and then it start all over again, you know? So, um, but this idea about the shaman thing, you know, when I met Maganda and people are like, Oh, you're like in a book. I said, no, that's impossible. It's impossible. Number one, you have to be born into it. Mm-hmm. You have to be born into it, like genetically. It has to be within your family. Now, I, I do believe that I have some genetic disposition because I remember those words I said to Boga. I know you. I met you before. I'm not afraid of you. So whether that was from another lifetime or whether that was just my response, there was definitely a feeling of that somewhere, some at some point somewhere, I had done something similar to this, mm-hmm. but like I had such a late start in this particular life that I would never achieve that position. And I never really want, it wasn't important to me to achieve it anyway. I find a lot of times if you find a, my personal belief here, so with a grain of salt, everyone out there, but very often when I've run into Westerners who actively try to take on the moniker shaman, it's wrapped up with a lot of ego and it's really, really something to be careful around because it's to me, the, the question I always ask is like, what's wrong with just being a facilitator? What's wrong with just being a helper? Like if that's not enough for you. And it's one thing if someone's like from Gabon or from South America and they grew up in this deeply steeped tradition of it, where that's like a position they were born into it. But I think for a lot of us Westerners, it's like, why do you feel the need to be a shaman and it's not really like in most cases it's not something you ever call yourself someone else calls you it so yeah. I, as a caveat for people out there like if you're running into someone in the west who's like i'm a shaman it's like okay interesting it kind of it makes me want to go the other way I mean, yeah same you know and, and 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 you know me and and truly shamans have as many problems as any normal human being mm-hmm. and what i've noticed was by believing that they're shaman, they automatically believe they're more more than what we are. In other words, they somehow know more about things than we know. But if you watch them, you will find that each person has a vulnerability to either sex, fame, prestige, power. You know, we all have we all have the same characteristics to gravitate towards our weaknesses, and thing i say to my friends is like medical doctors are alcoholics too yeah. like just because they're a medical doctor just because they're in the er every day doesn't mean they're above reproach 
but they have a specific set of skills and in that arena you should respect their abilities but outside of that arena they're, they're just a person mm-hmm. yeah. and and that, and that was kind of what my that i was trying to really not i didn't want people to think that i was having any control over their healing mm. um that they had dreamed me up to create an environment this is back to the dreaming yeah. that they had dreamed me up to create an environment that was optimum for their experience that I was a, I was playing a role in their dream. And, and so were the other characters of the dream house. We were playing a role in the dream to fulfill their spiritual growth in, in a, in a way for them to best benefit. Mm-hmm. And so by, by keeping ourselves a certain distance and being providers and not being a therapist or a professional or a psychologist or a shaman we were allowing for them to literally create their own healing experience Mm. and the effects of that by them owning the fact that they did this for themselves like you you jumped through the hoops you got yourself down to mexico you were able to find medications to stabilize yourself you went through all your fears of leaving the states of leaving your family of, of, of putting your trust in these people that you've never met, you know, and then you talk about intimacy, like, like I never even understood intimacy until after Iboga working with people and you get this deep connection within a matter of hours mm. with somebody that's more profound than relationships I've had with friends my entire life. Right. Like there's a bond that's happening and it's a confirmation that the elements are, are proper. Right. And if that doesn't happen, which was only a few times, I had to tell them, look, I can't provide for you. I'm mm-hmm. sorry you got all the way down here. It only happened a few times. But there were a few characters where I had to basically either call Claire or Chris or somebody, mm-hmm. call Richie and say, look, you know, this is, they, they've got to go somewhere. I can't, I can't provide what they're asking for. Mm. We're going to have to find it. We'll help them find a different alternative, but it can't, right. go, it can't come through me. Yeah. It's not a match. But and most times, like I said, we, we caught it before they got on an airplane and mm-hmm. invested time and energy and money. So, um, but you know, the principle of, of people creating their own healing adventure for it's, is super valuable because people 100%. get addicted to their therapists Oh, or they exactly. become dependent mm-hmm. on somebody. This and this is they even do this in regular Western medicine. That oh, doctor, you fixed my heart. You saved mm-hmm. me. You know, it's like, well, really, he's doing the job that he was taught to do. But, but, but projecting that, that and 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 they allow for it. Like they allow for it. There, there should be like a stipulation of like, no, no, no. You're creating the circumstances for your healing. Right. You made a choice with me. I feel I'm a good doctor and I can do this for you. Thank you for appreciating my skills, mm-hmm. but that's as far as it goes. You're creating the healing. So I don't I know. I, big emphasis. Big emphasis. Absolutely. I, I love what Dr. Jordan Peterson has to say on that topic about therapists in general, but I think it applies broadly. And what he says is like, if I am your healer and I fix you, I have robbed you of learning how to heal yourself. And now you become dependent on me every time you have a problem. I teach you dependency if I'm your healer. So it's like, I'm going to allow you to heal yourself. 
I'll create the arena in which you can safely do that work and I'll help you as best I can, but you're doing the healing because then it's your own victory. Then you've, you've done the work and you're like, oh, I can be proud that I did this and now I believe in myself versus, oh, well, Rocky healed me. So I'm probably not really much better off. I'm kind of still a piece of crap, but Rocky healed me. So we're good. <laughs> well, and, 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 but, you know, somehow this is built into us, you know, maybe it's a Western thing. I don't know. But like this idea that our parents know all the answers, this mm-hmm. idea that the teachers know all the answers, this idea that, you know, it, 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 it's a hard, it's a hard uh, imprint to break. You know, we come up, we come into the world and we, we, we develop these imprints of belief and, and they have to be broken and we have to literally create new ones. And that's about, I think that's what they call growing up. Uh, you know, you have to question what your truths are. You have to question what, I mean, you have to like, you can't just join the clubs and expect to get the same results. You have to literally get the machete out and, carve out your own path Mm -hmm. you know and it's hard like it's like it's you know there's just no short there's no shortcut everybody used to think oh you know you take a boga and you get to miss out on all those withdrawals well what you're doing is you're not you're not you're this isn't this isn't really a shortcut what you're doing is you're compressing a difficult experience and you're condensing it into a few really really intense Mm -hmm. days Absolutely. Rather than stretching it out over a long period of time of healing. So, but you're not really getting away with anything because no. the aboga is drawing energy. The detox is drawing energy. So the whole, the whole sense of value of when, when we talk about doing treatments is how can we best conserve as much energy in this individual, mm-hmm. not just physically, but um, people spend so much energy on, on emotional fears so how, how can we, because we didn't like strip search people when they came in. Mm-hmm. Basically, we kept looking at people and met them right where they were at. And we were not judgmental. It didn't matter how much morphine it took to stabilize you. I'm not mm-hmm. going to try to adjust your dose. That's not what my, that's not what my intention is. Because people would squirrel drugs in, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and if you mix drugs with Ibogaine, you could die. Like this is a right. matter of fact. So the idea was is that we had about four days to, to establish and normally by four days they use up their squirrel anyway mm-hmm. right they they can't not touch it right um, you know so whether they were or not we could kind of tell or not you know but we had several people come to us and say here can you and i said look man i'm gonna put this in the safe it's got your name on it it belongs to you mm-hmm. you want it back at the end it's yours take right. it home but you can't do it here Right? right, you can't do it in the house. You can't do it after two guys again. You're gonna have to make those decisions and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, so we really try. It was like a new modality of a free will clinic. In other mm-hmm. words, it was your decision to come here. It's your decision to work the way we work because you're attracted to it for whatever reasons you have. So, but it's almost like too much empowerment for people that were, you know, basically addicted for a long time right. because you get so messed up in the dependency on your dealer to you've got to do the song and dance and what women have to do in a lot of mm-hmm. and men for that case mm-hmm. have to do to acquire and maintain a habit um you know it's like so when you give people that much space and i thought it would work i thought it would work but it but it but it, it 
people just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. In a lot of cases, they couldn't help but manipulate it and then turn it into something different, which was kind of a disappointment for me because I really felt like this was this was the proper way out of these complicated problems mm -hmm. is by empowerment, is by reintroducing respect to you, by giving you your own self-respect back. It was like they almost had a reversion to, to that responsibility still. Mm -hmm. Like they, they weren't ready to take on that level of responsibility at that time. And, uh, and that was a little disappointing because it really was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> but In an ideal world, that would be the way. But I think you know, yeah, what you, you need to realize is you got to put some bumpers on the bowling alley and you got to like allow people like you have your free will within this, but I'm not going to let you roll a gutter ball. Well, the thing is, you know, a lot of people came down because they were sent. Hmm. And we were running a business. So there was this other responsibility, which was a big nut. It was like 17 grand a month right. for 10 years, every month. Got to come up with it. Mm -hmm. You know, if we had clients or not, you know, like there was this business aspect that is involved in working with Ibogaine, you know, and everybody's like, why is it so expensive? It's like, I, I would love to give this away. Right. The money has a, has a, a purpose. It's called the bite. In other words, you're making an exchange for energy for receiving something. So that 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 is a component that's necessary. And if you can find an alternative to money, that's great. But there still has to be a bite. There has to be a trade. Mm -hmm. But if you, like I said, if somebody was sent down and didn't pay for their treatment, and they they really weren't prepared to be off drugs or whatever. It could, it, it would be really, it could be really a difficult situation because, yeah. you know, they, they, and there was a couple of times that people showed up and I said, you, you're, you're not really ready to go through this. If you have, if you're not a hundred percent your choice, I can't, I can't give it to you. And they're like, well, I can't go back home. You know, my wife, I said, I'm sorry, but like, we can't change the rules on that. You have to come to your own conclusion that this is what you want to do. Because once I give this medicine to you, it's three days, dude, you're going to be going through it. Right. You're in it. You know, like this isn't something we can just like abort and uh, you're going to feel back to normal in four or five hours. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, uh, it's just not that kind of medicine. Yeah. So. Beautiful. Well, we're getting close to the end here. Got a few more minutes. Um, so I guess first, first, last question if you will um where's a good place for people to find you websites what's the best place for people to get in contact if they think they're feeling that call after hearing all this and hearing the other episode with asha and they're like "Ooh, i began sounds like it might be the thing what's the best place to research and what's the best place to get in contact well we we, we just built a, a new website the old website is actually very informative and that's awakening in the dream dot com right, which came from the Awaken in the Dream groups. So awakeninginthedream.com is the original, is really designed and modeled, you know, specifically for screening people for chemical dependency. Um, and then we moved here to San Miguel, and, and I go, I, I have to say, I've got some trauma, you know, inside around doing detox, and I'm kind of at my limit. I think a 1,000 treatments is like mm -hmm. a lot for one person. Yeah. We're up in the 800s or something. So. So we're screening much more carefully for doing chemical dependency. So then we created a new website, which is Awakening in the Dream Group. Hmm. 
which is really cool because it gives people, uh, we have a lot of pictures of the different years in the project in San Poncho and doing the, the first Ibogaine Providers Conference, which ended up turning into the Global Ibogaine Therapy Alliance, which is GITA, mm. which was in honor of, of Howard Lotsoff. That happened in 2009. We had the first um, you know, uh, Ibogaine Provider Conference, um, and there's been several since then. And GITA is still kind of holding, its, holding its, itself, but it's expensive to run a organization like that and having the people to do it. But, but Gita is still up and running. Um, so anyway, it's awakening in the dream groups.com. And what it's really discussing there is it's really discussing the different qualities of the medicine. So there's the total alkaloid extract and then there's the Ibogaine hydrochloride and then there's purified total. So I kind of go into explaining about the medicines, but also more about, how we're, we've learned how to use this medicine to work with in lower dose ranges for other uh, conditions, um, whether they be emotional or mental or trauma or abuse or whatever, that we can work with people over time and that we can even do detoxes over time, that, that we're trying to create a new, a new presentation based on our experience and based on um, you know what we've learned over the years with working with a lot of different people of, of how we can expand expand our ability to help more people so awakening in the dream group.com and then you know there's a contact uh, page there um, you know we, we always guide people to the Gita uh, guidelines you know because there's a lot of good information about preparation but you know most of it's like still there's this whole medical aspect of gotta have an EKG and gotta have mm. lower. you know there's this like medical screening policies um, but more and more we're trying to hear that voice that like I said is calling them to us and then we hear that call and then we have a responsibility to the spirit to to provide that work for them Mm. So it goes into a little bit more of an explanation about what that looks like and really trying to help people find their way of where they need to go in order to achieve the goals that they want to achieve. So, um, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I like to do at the end of every episode is just take a second to acknowledge my guest. So Rocky, thank you for being on and thank you for all the work that you've done throughout your life up to this point. I really think that it's a beautiful story and I think people will find a lot of impact in it. And I also truly believe that these healing modalities of various different sorts are one of the most important levers being pulled right now for collectively for the earth to kind of wake up. We're seeing so much strife, so much difficulty. My home city of Minneapolis right now is like half on fire because of rioting. Yeah, And yeah, it's, yeah. It, there's so much of that going on, but the more we can sort of share these medicines out and honor some of the work that you've been doing for so long, the more we can collectively start to wake up. So just to take a second to acknowledge you for doing that work and walking the walk and talking the talk about it. It's super, super important. And I'm honored to have shared a podcast space with you. Well, thank you very much. And, and, and like I said, I, had, I haven't done this in a number of years and um, I'd let it go. Like I had to sober up 
I sobered up from alcohol five years ago. And, you know, for the last four and a half, five years, I wasn't really sure what was going to come from the aboga, but I had to let it go. And uh, it's coming back. Mm. I've been working with medicine again myself. Um, and the, the voice is coming back. Mm. So I feel like I'm at the beginning again of a new chapter. And uh, you're the first one that I've had the opportunity to kind of share where Rocky's at in his past. Yeah. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hell yeah. Well, thank you for being on and we'll talk soon. All right. And that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. Rocky's story really was so, so interesting. If you want to connect with him and with Ibogaine as a medicine, you can find all of the details about their website and how to connect with them in the notes of the show and in the details so just find the links there go check it out and as always you can find me at www.throughtheveil.co again www.throughtheveil.co or on instagram at alexander diesel much love everyone i hope you have a beautiful weekend and i will talk to you next week